The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, November 15th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Elizabeth Warren has amended or possibly withdrawn her big tax the wealth to deliver the health plan. I mean, that is still the goal of her policies and her new plan, or I guess you would maybe call it a series of plans. But it seems that she's saying we can get there to the land of health a lot easier than in the first version of the plan, which early reviews indicate hues much more to reality than the old plan did. So it's now a two-part plan where first she would create a public option and next within three years, she would pass a bill that eliminates existing private plans. Seems to acknowledge some of the problems, practical and political, of her original idea, which was widely criticized, and by widely I mean from the right, the middle, and the far left. Paul Krugman tweets of this new plan, this new initiative from Warren looks much more workable politically than immediate transition to single payer. If she wins and Dems take the Senate, the immediate plan is for a sort of expanded ACA plus public option which means it's not single payer, which means, in my opinion, it might be doable. And not being single payer and trying to be doable was exactly the point that Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, mostly by implication, were making. And politically, that does take away some of the advantage they had because the point they were making is now the point she is making. So it's no longer a point in their favor. Buttigieg did go to Elizabeth Warren into an own goal of laying out a huge, sprawling, complex, ambitious plan that was riddled with more arrows than St. Sebastian. Now, was it just Pete Buttigieg's getting under Warren's skin? And whenever I use the possessive on Pete Buttigieg, people complain, but I think it's Buttigieg's. No, I think what was going on is that Elizabeth Warren was caught between two competing impulses. One was her motto and brand. I got a plan for that. The other impulse is encapsulated in this famous exchange. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. So, having a plan for everything meets the go big or go home imperative in her first healthcare proposal. It was indeed an enumeration of everything that someone who wanted single payer could ever hope to fight for. Well, it turns out maybe there are some initiatives that will in fact be hard to do. And it also turns out that maybe there's a role for being strategic in how you fight for what you want. So we have this less destructive time frame endorsed by Elizabeth Warren's new plan. Another way of looking at it is that maybe without her announcing the first plan and it getting pushed back and it being fact-checked and her dropping in the polls a bit after the announcement, which might not be coincidental, without all that, maybe we wouldn't have the current plan. In other words, it just may be the case that Elizabeth Warren is her own Overton window. On the show today, 
Some more impeachment hearings. Let's focus on that clear beacon of sanity and virtue. Yeah, I'm talking about Devin Nunes. But first, empathy is in the decline, studies show. But who did those studies? Jerks. Probably some jerks. F that guy. Wait, maybe I'm part of the problem. I see that now. Let's hope not, because I'm joined by Stanford psychology professor who is an expert on empathy. And I got to say, I give him a pretty hard time in this interview. I am a little suspicious, because when we were kids, we had sympathy, and sympathy worked fine. Now, we got empathy. But here, with another side of the argument aside that here's my side and understands where it's coming from, the author of The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Empathy. Who doesn't like empathy? Well, maybe me. I'm a big fan of sympathy. It's what I grew up with. But empathy, kind of draining. And yet, Jamil Zaki, who is a professor of psychology at Stanford and the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory has put together a book called The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Jamil is here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I like defining our terms. And as I understood it was sympathy is feeling sorrow for someone. Empathy is feeling as if you were someone putting yourself in their shoes. I understand as an exercise why it's good. I just wonder if we're really better off, if what we want is, like, let's define what we want out of society, better opportunities for people, less privation, um, less negative feeling, why isn't sympathy enough? Well, so it's great to define our terms. If you want to call that sympathy versus empathy, that's fine. The way that most psychologists think about it would be a little bit different. We would say that empathy is an umbrella term for multiple ways we connect with each other, including sharing people's emotions, which I think is what you're calling empathy, mm-hmm. but also feeling concerned for them, which I think is what you're calling sympathy, and the ability to take their perspective, which we yes. would call cognitive empathy. Okay, so let's put the third thing aside. Um, there was Tip O'Neill was a great politician, and he used to champion a lot of social programs, and as a politician, some were done for a political gain, but often he was just sympathetic. So he would always brag about all the programs 
plans that he had to help the life lives of dwarves for some reason. And Chris Matthews always tell this story. He'd always talk about the dwarves. Now, Tip O'Neill was this giant of a man. I doubt he could feel empathy with a dwarf. Maybe for a second or two, you're like, oh, yeah, I never realized it's hard to reach uh, that high button in an elevator, let's <laughs> say. Uh, but sympathy seems fine. Sympathy guided the person to give money for social programs and to change the ADA code. And everyone's better off because he had sympathy. Why did he need to have empathy? Well, I, I don't think that you need empathy for everything. I certainly mm-hmm. don't think that you need it to structure a humane policy that helps people. But I would argue that maybe it's not true that Tip O'Neill, as a tall person, couldn't have empathy. No, for I, that was being a little glib there. Yes, you can. Right, right, because right. Because the particulars of our lives are different, but the contours of our emotions can be quite similar, right? I want something. I don't get it. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. Now, for you, that goal might be different than it is for me, but we can share the way that that feels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Paul Bloom at Yale has written about a book against empathy, and I think it was meant to be provocative, but he really does come down to reason, reason being a better guiding principle than empathy. I'm very empirical. You are too, right? I mean, I love the the end notes in your book where you sort of rate, rate the quality of the research or the uh, the replicability, let's say. Does a belief, well, you've, I'm sure you've read Bloom's book, but does an emphasis on empathy preclude letting reason be your guide? So I love Paul. He's a great frenemy to have. And we've debated about this yes. everywhere for a long time. I think that, that it's great to think about trying to be reasonable. But I think that his view of emotion and logic as fundamentally separable is really old-fashioned. Okay. Right? What psychologists now know is that, well, when we try to reason objectively, our emotions and desires get into what we end up thinking anyways, through confirmation bias and the like. And instead of being sort of fundamentally irrational, we can actually work with our emotions. So we can tune them towards our goals, right? So emotion and reason are not as fundamentally split as I think Paul would like to think. Right. But you're saying that that emotion is a flaw in reason. I agree. Oh, no, I'm not saying that at all. Well, you say a cognitive bias could get into our reasoning. If we can say, I know we're not robots, but as best we can, if we can reason with that portion of the brain and not let emotion get into it and make the right choices based on that, let me give you a tangible example. If we were to have a foreign policy of what aid to give based on empathy, we'd probably give it to the worst off people in the world. But if we were to have, or what wars to intervene in, if you could show me more pictures of children dying and the worst they were actually suffering, number of suffering, amount of suffering, that would dictate our foreign intervention. Yet a reason-based foreign policy would take a lot other things into effect, like Ability to win the war, ability to, if you quote unquote, overthrow that dictator, what their lives would be otherwise. Um, American interests in general. I would rather go with the reasoned approach of intervention with a little bit of sympathy involved versus the empathetic approach where you put yourself in the position of the victims and let that rule the day. Again, so I think of empathy and emotion as not necessarily a guide for how groups of people must behave, organizing policy and the like. That said, I do think that the idea that we can be purely logical Vulcan beings in our morality is a dangerous one because it's incorrect. I just yeah. don't think that that's the way that people operate. And I, I agree, but aren't you strawmanning this? Like, I'm not, I know we can't be that, but what is better to be? I don't have Paul Bloom here and I can't channel him, but what's the better way to be guided in your decisions. I, and by the way, I also take and hear that your analysis is not as American foreign policy. It's more of the individual American how to act. Sure. I get that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So Paul is not made of straw, right? He's yes. a flesh and yes. blood human being. And I think you're channeling him pretty well. And in fact, he does make a stark distinction between emotion and reason. I say that what psychology comes down on is that emotion and reason work together and we guide our emotions and our emotions in turn give teeth or sort of power our actions, right? I mean, if yeah. you just think of things in a purely cognitive fashion, you might not be moved to act. That's why they call it being moved, mm-hmm. right? And so what I come down on is that we can steer our own emotions, right? Sometimes other people try to steer them for us. You talked really, you know, something that a lot of psychologists discuss is, hey, if I just see pictures of one disaster and not another, well, I'll over, I'll overwhelmingly want to give to the first rather than the yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. That's a flaw. Or the quality of the narrator, because we're all very narrative-driven, will have a greater effect on our empathy than perhaps the facts. Politicians, yeah. companies, right. propagandists all try to drive our emotion. And they all do, whether we realize it or not. What I try to talk about in the book is that we can drive our own emotions and we can make choices about the way that we feel, about how we point our empathy. And those choices are powerful. And and we're making them whether we know it or not. So we might as well know that we are. An interesting part of the book is you talk about people whose jobs, caregivers, whose jobs it is to kind of be empathetic and sit in empathy. And maybe there was a conception of the more the better, but we're learning that that is not the case. Absolutely. I mean, I guess if one of the key points of the book is that you can control your empathy, and I, yeah. I do subtitle it Building Empathy, and so people say, does that mean that we should turn our empathy up to 11, spinal tap style, yeah, yeah. all the time? No, that would be a disaster, right? I mean, you couldn't walk a block in downtown Manhattan without collapsing to a heap. And that's definitely true in medical settings, right? I mean, so I've worked with NICU physicians and nurses and social workers. And I mean, if they felt the pain of every family in the room, they would burn out. And many of them do. Um, And, you know, that also wouldn't help them help their patients. I mean, I don't want my therapist crying and saying, God, your life really does suck, right? I don't want him to share my feelings. I want him to understand and feel concerned for me. And so one of the things that that I'm trying to do and other psychologists are trying to do in medical settings is help professionals sort of toggle between different types of of empathy. So you talk about distress and concern. That's right. So not feeling as somebody does, but feeling for them. I do think, or I do wonder, that many of the solutions in the book, you talked about meditation for a second, or things the Seattle Police Department is doing, and some of them are opt-in, and some of them are, you know, being being dictated from on high. I do think that the kind of person who is just interested in meditation and who is saying, yeah, I'd like to give that a try, is not that alone is probably 80 to 90% of the solution. Just wanting to be empathetic is pretty much the most empathetic act you could take. And when we talk about society's lack of empathy, we're probably the big problems are the people who either don't have the time or are dealing with, you know, maybe a kid with an opioid problem or are feeling resentful because of strangers because their life is in such extremis that it seems harder to, you know, prescribe uh, meditation to those people and think it's going to be the solution. Well, I, I agree. Uh, on the other hand, people want to do what they think will be good for them and mm-hmm. what they think other people are doing. So there are just some unhelpful stereotypes that we've developed, right? We think that if I'm stressed, I should focus only on myself and I could never have the bandwidth to help somebody else. But research demonstrates that when you force people who are stressed to help someone, they actually feel less stressed as a result. So we're we're sort of robbing ourselves of the solution sometimes because of our wrongful stereotypes 
stereotypes about how people work. And likewise, I think that we're not doing ourselves any favor when we tell ourselves that our culture is an individualistic, greedy one. Because if we think that that's what the people around us are, yeah. then we'll fall in line. Yeah, yeah. Or an emphasis on the transactional nature of I get something and that's the only reason I'll give something. So since, since the book came out, I've received hundreds of emails from people who say, I want a more caring culture. I want to be more caring, but I'm the only one. And I'm like, can I put you all in a group chat? Like right. you're surrounded by each other, but sometimes the loudest voices in our culture just aren't the kindest. So we get sort of magnetized towards this toxic extreme behavior because we think that's what our culture is. But maybe there's a quieter majority underneath that. You know what I was thinking about as I read the book talking about the uh, concern versus distress? I was thinking about the socialists because I did this thing at Politicon and the socialists were all really, really angry. I, I suppose there are some nice socialists, maybe some of the older ones. You know, Bernie Sanders seems like, although he has a lot of anger and fire, he doesn't really have personal animus. He's, he's very good friends who are conservatives. Anyway, I think about the socialists and sometimes the young socialists and the people with the rose next to their names. And they're, they're sometimes the meanest people online. And I wonder if their feeling has stopped being uh, this constructive concern for all they see in the world. I'm not saying that the world doesn't need ton of changing and our society doesn't need working over, but it's become distress. And when it's become distress, it shows up and presents itself in sometimes these, you know, caustic, confrontational, extreme ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot to be distressed about right now. Right. You know, and, and I think that it's, you know, I, I, I sympathize with people who, you know, who can't regulate that feeling. I'm not going to comment on whether one sort of group of people yeah. politically are, are that way or not. But I think a I'm lot sure the of, Tea Party thinks the same way, too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm, right. So there's there's this idea like if you're not angry, you're not, you're not paying attention. Yeah. Which yeah. which might be true. But right. again, the question is, how can we make our emotions useful? Right. And I think so my, my friend Rob Willer, um, you know, has done work demonstrating that when protests are when people use extreme measures in protests, they're actually less effective at convincing anyone of, of their argument. Whereas when they frame their argument in a way that the other side can understand, yeah. they're more compelling. Right. Yeah. So I think that, um, again, I'm not going to apart from what group we're talking about, when you have strong emotions about what's going on. A question that you might ask yourself is, how can I channel these emotions into a useful action? Mm -hmm. How can I become compelling? How can I generate a movement? And, you know, maybe sometimes that's through anger. Anger is not always a bad thing. Distress is not always a bad thing. It's right. just about the way that we control and work with those emotions. Right. But distress is proper when you touch the hot stove, right? To think of every stove, whether it's on or off, as being a flame might be a misuse of distress. Well, that's when distress turns into chronic anxiety. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. All right, so the, this part of the book I love. There are all, like many books that build a case based on your own work, the works of your colleagues, the works of uh, studies that are out there. You're acknowledging these studies aren't always perfect. And if you were to write a book or a similar book 20 years ago, you'd probably be citing a Stanley Milgram and the Stanford prison experiment. Stanford, wait a minute. 
Is yeah. that your building? <laughs> yeah, and there's a plaque. No, there's really? A plaque right <laughs> one floor beneath my office. There's a plaque for the prison experiment. I'm always like, do we really want a plaque for this? <laughs> a pla- like a testimony to an unreplicable study. <laughs> right? Am I right, though? It's pr- been pretty hard to replicate that. That's one of those That's totems I- of how unreplicable science is. So what do you and your, who is it, your, the researcher you worked with to kind of assess the quality of the studies in the book? Carrie Leibowitz. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically we were thinking science is changing, right? We're sort of revising what we know all the time. And in the book, some of the things that I cite are based on 70 plus years of evidence and have been replicated over and over again. Like what's one, what's one that's just so solid in terms of replicability? Uh, Contact theory that when you befriend or form relationships with people from different groups, your prejudice and stereotyping against those groups tends to diminish. In certain ways, form bonds, not just like see them on a train. No, no, no. In fact, seeing someone on a train could have the opposite effect because you feel like they're encroaching on, but, but so there are rules for yes. how contact theory works and when it works. Right. But if you meet those criteria, the effect is extremely strong and replicable. Okay, right? good. And so other things are brand new, right? So some of the studies that I cite are my own, and I was like excited that they had been published a week before, right? Now, I want to acknowledge that those have different status in terms of their, what we would call evidentiary value, mm-hmm. right? If you've only done something once, you just don't know whether it's going to turn out the same way every single time. And so I wanted readers, you know, I, I wanted readers to have a chance to understand that, you know, and to evaluate the evidence for themselves and know, hey, this thing is brand new, So catch me again in five years and I'll tell you whether replicated this thing I have high confidence in. I just want to trust my readers to be, you know, to be wise enough to understand that, that again, science is a process. It's not a completed product and that we're on, we're kind of working through it together and I'm giving them what I know and I want them to know how well I know it and what I'm confident in and what I'm less confident in. The name of the book is The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World, Jamil Zaki, thanks so much. Thank you. Marie Yovanovitch testified before the House Intelligence Committee today. She was removed from her post. She was smeared, but not smeared with marmalade and fed to ants. So that whole thing lacked pizzazz. She confirmed all the misdeeds that were brought up by Ambassador Taylor and State Department official George Kent. But since those only confirmed troubling, shameful acts, rather than shouting out accusations through slurred speech while teetering on stilettos as your champagne flute sloshes about, again, you got the pizzazz problem. But for all the charges of pizzazzlessness that we've had to consider over the past couple days, I have to say, there was a pretty pizzazzful display today in Congress, and it was put on by Republican Devin Nunes, who took umbrage, great umbrage, that committee chair Adam Schiff would ever worry that the Republicans might expose the whistleblower, who they, by the way, call not a real whistleblower and in need of exposure. Here's what Nunes said. No Republicans here know the whistleblower's identity because the whistleblower only met with Democrats. This, we should point out, this fact or this claim was also echoed by Adam Schiff on Wednesday, who said he doesn't know who the whistleblower is, only his staff does. This whole thing, denying knowledge of the whistleblower, strikes me as weird because I know the name of the whistleblower. And the reason I do is that Donald Trump Jr. tweeted it. And that on Fox, a Trump defender blurted it out. And also that Senator Rand Paul said the name of the whistleblower. 
said the whistleblower must come forward, then name the whistleblower. I guess a lot is riding on the exact meaning of no, not as in no, don't say the name of the whistleblower, you lawless maniacs. More like Adam Schiff doesn't 100% know in a confirmed by the appropriate authority sense. He doesn't know that this particular guy who all the people are naming as the whistleblower really is the whistleblower. Fine. So we come to, should Schiff worry about the Republicans? I mean, yes, Rand Paul, a Republican senator, but we're talking about Republicans in the House of Representatives. Would a Republican member of the House of Representatives ever out the whistleblower? Guess what? One already has. North Carolina radio station WFAE notes that Dan Bishop said the whistleblower ain't Voldemort. And then the station went on to report. Bishop also wrote that the person who reported the president's call about Ukraine is, quote, not a bona fide whistleblower, and that, quote, even if he were, he wouldn't be entitled to secrecy. Bishop then wrote the name of a person whom he said is a, quote, deep state conspirator. He wrote that that person needs to testify now. The name Bishop tweeted was the same as the name that Rand Paul mentioned, that Donald Trump Jr. mentioned, and the Trumpista on Fox mentioned. But Nunes wasn't done with the complaints and the umbrage taking. He criticized the entire proceedings with this charge. Uh, I would just say to the American people, today's show trial has come to an end. We're headed down now to the basement of the Capitol to go until I don't know what time, and we'll be back there hiding again behind the closed doors. It is a show trial to be criticized for playing out for all the public to see, but it should also be critiqued because it's behind closed doors, cult-like, those were Nunez's words, cult-like, and therefore escapes scrutiny. Scrutiny that I suppose would be forthcoming were it to be, I don't know, played out on television. You know, I gotta say, whenever I see arguments like that, I, I kind of fear for my job. Because what's my job? I'm here to point out contradictions, to offer context, perhaps to give you some insight. But do you need me? Do you really need me? If within the span of 15 seconds, Devin Nunes criticizes open proceedings for not being closed, then criticizes closed proceedings for not being open, what is my use here? Perhaps my only use is branding. So a while ago, I noted that Devin Nunes was removed from his role as acting head of the intelligence agency with, with anything having to do with the Mueller report because he badly bungled some tactics of uh, trying to discredit that investigation. He was embarrassed, and back then, Trey Gowdy had to take over. But unlike the former representative, Gowdy is out of Congress now, I do not think the sorting cap would deign to place Devin Nunes in the house of Slytherin. Devin Nunes is pure Dudley Dursley. But the reason I bring this all up is just to demonstrate that Nunes was and continues to be discredited. And also, if you watch, the guy comes through very clearly. He is a nincompoop. And this was my branding. Devin Nunes, disgraced nincompoop. Jim Jordan, this guy's not honest, but at least he's cogent, speaks quickly, you know, punchy sentences. Elise Stefanik, she's not substantive, but she's not just pure silliness. Devin Nunes is, and continues to be, a disgraced nincompoop. And if that is all I can add to a broad American tapestry of civic involvement, then I am happy to play my role. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Daniel Schrader doesn't know who the whistleblower is, doesn't even know what a whistle is, what it does. Or who New York Times columnist Charles Blow is? Or who is that James Bond villain, Klaus Someonefeld? 
Just producer Christina DeJosa. She doesn't even think a whistle can blow. I mean, she once had a whistle, tried to blow it, made no noise. Did drive the schnauzer crazy. That's weird. The gist, discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes, if he tries really hard and puts in the time and works on honing his skills at making pointless arguments seem compelling, well then, I think he could ascend to Jim Jordan heights of being useful to his fellow Republicans, though inaccurate. And I vow that if Devin Nunes shows this propensity, I will no longer dub him disgraced nincompoop Devin Nunes. He will become distractionary nitwit Devin Nunes. Perhaps dare to dream. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.